The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Yesterday, uh, Trish and I had the privilege of going to Chadwick and Lauren's wedding. Many of you know Chadwick and Lauren. And uh, good news, they got married. The transaction went through, and so they are now husband and wife. And um, as we were sitting around the reception meal, we said, what's your funny wedding story? You know, like everyone has something that happened either at their wedding or someone else's wedding that was unique, right? And it's part of their wedding story. Well, one of the stories that came to mind was actually at Trisha's brother's wedding. Uh, it, was a, it was a great wedding. We went to the reception. It was at a hotel and kind of a banquet hall and a wonderful meal. And then the music started, right? And this is usually the most entertaining part of the reception because you have a whole bunch of people who know they can't dance, but just don't care. And that's one of the wonderful things about the, uh, the wedding reception. Well, we, are, we were there and people are dancing or trying, whatever you want to call it. Um, they're out there shaking their, their limbs and things like that. And uh, anyway, so we form this circle, right? And we're clapping and we're encouraging people who can't dance to get in the middle and, and dance, right? And then we're cheering them on like they're rock stars when really they're just doing the sprinkler or whatever it might be. Well, we're there, we're cheering him on, and, and, and the, the father of the bride gets in there, and he's dancing, and then, and as he's dancing, this guy comes into the circle. Uh, nobody knows this guy. Evidently, this guy was just staying in the hotel. He was bored. He came down, and he came, and he, and he got in the circle, and he kind of pushed the father out, and then did what was one of the most vulgar dances I have ever seen in my life. It was unbelievable. And I still remember standing there thinking, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to come in and do something so inappropriate and embarrass the family and embarrass this wedding? Who do you think you are? Today, we are going to be looking at a passage in which the religious leaders come to a man who is doing something that they think is quite inappropriate. And they say, who do you think you are? If you would open up your Bibles to John chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 34. It is page 886 in the Red Bible. And if you have the the children's Bible, the new children's Bible is page 1299. John chapter 1. Last week we started the Gospel of John and we covered the first 18 verses, which is kind of like a table of index, showing us things that are to come in the Gospel of John. And we saw a lot about the identity of Jesus. We saw that Jesus is the creator, that he was there in the beginning, that Jesus is a man, that Jesus was a reject. If that sounds bad to you, go back and listen to the sermon on the website. Jesus is a reject. And finally, that Jesus is our life. But today we discover a bold new character, John the Baptist. And he is doing things that are quite inappropriate for the Jews. First off, John has hundreds of people coming to him, flocking to him. And he is baptizing these people. Now, what is, what is strange about that, what is the big no-no about that, is that baptism was only to be done by priests, which John was not. But also, baptism was not for Jews. 
Baptism was for people who were not Jews, who were becoming Jews. And so it was a ceremonial cleaning. And here John is, and he is baptizing Jews as if to say, you need to be converted again. You need to be changed again. And so these men come out, and they say to John, who are you? Who do you think you are? And that's what we're going to look at today. So let's read John chapter 1, again, page 886 in the Red Bible, 1299 in the Children's Bible. We're actually going to read verses 6 through 8 and then jump down to verse 19 and read through 34. So start with me in John 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all believed through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Jump down to verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he, of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remained, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this man, John, this extraordinary new witness, we pray that you would be exalted in our hearts you would be exalted in our lives, that you would come preeminent to us, Lord God, that we would treasure you above all else. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. For those of you who've not been around Jacob's Well long, uh, we started services two and a half years ago, but the foundations of Jacob's Well started taking place about three years ago. And I have told people time and time again, that I have never learned so much about myself as I have in the past three years. Uh, 
what I'm good at, what I'm average at, what I'm bad at. You know, I'm often asking the question, who am I? Who did God make me to be? What are, what are the ways that I'm supposed to operate? What gives me energy? What takes energy away from me? How should I structure my schedule? How do I, you know, balance family life and church life and, and recreation? All those things. Constantly asking the question, again, God, who am I? In a way, I'm a mystery to myself more now than I have ever been in my life. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. But we look at John, and John is so sure of who he is. He is so passionate. He is so convicted of what he's supposed to be proclaiming, what he's supposed to be doing. I look at a guy like John, and I say, that is someone I want to be like. Someone who has this extraordinary purpose in life. Someone who has this great desire, who understands who he is. Well, there are two things as we look through this text that John really seems to grasp as he understands his identity. The first thing, John understands who he isn't. He knows who he's not. And the second thing is he knows who he is. And so those are the two things we're going to look at. Who John is not and who John is. First, we see who John is not. Verse 19, if you read along with me, says, And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Again, who do you think you are? Calling people to repentance, baptizing people. Who do you think you are? Verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. You may notice how awkward that statement is, how emphatic it is in the English. It's even more awkward and more emphatic in the original language of the Greek. But he wants to declare First things first, I am not the Christ. I know I have a lot of people following me. I know I seem to have a lot of power. I know I have a lot of people coming to be baptized, but I am not the Christ. I am not the one that you have been waiting for and expecting. I am not that Messiah. When I was in seminary, there was a class with Dr. Jay Scalar, and he would open the class with a little, you know, three, four, five-minute devotional every class. One day, he taught on this text, and he said, okay, we're going we're gonna to do something now. And about as many people, no, nah, not this many, probably 70, 80 people uh, in the class, and he said, here's what I want to do. Let's go around, one by one, stand up, and say, I am not the Christ. So we went around. I am not the Christ. 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 Went around the whole room. Kind of awkward, kind of strange, but cool at the same time. So after five minutes, because it took that long, we're done. And he looks at us and he says, again, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. Around the whole room again. Why would he do this? Did any of us think we were God incarnate? Did any of us think we were the Messiah? Did any of us actually think we were Jesus Christ? No. Yes. You know, there is this, uh, there is this savior complex that people get, you know? Here, here's how it kind of flushes out. If only that person was like me, Right? If only if that person was like me, you know, if only my boss was like me, this business would be a whole lot better. If only my, my children or my brother and sister was more like me, we would get along. 
You know, if only my wife or my husband was like me, man, that would be great, you know? Not physically. Anyways, you know what I'm saying. If only they were like me, right? That's a savior complex. Or, boy, if I can just get to that person, I can really lighten up their life. I can, I can, I can speak encouragement into them, which is great. God gives that. But we get this savior complex. And so what he wanted to make sure that we understood was that we were not the Christ, especially as a bunch of men and women that were going out into the community to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And so John openly proclaims here, I am not the Christ. The priests continue to interrogate him to find out who John is. And they ask him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Now, for these Jewish scholars, this would have had a tremendous meaning to them. So let's dive into it a little bit. And the, the last prophet of the Old Testament, which is, which is the, the, the books of the Bible before Jesus, the last prophet was a guy named Malachi. And he, he, the last prophecy of Malachi, as a matter of fact, the last two verses of Malachi point forward to Elijah. Follow along with me on the screen. Malachi 4, 5 through 6. This is about 400 years before John. And, um, and these are the last two verses of the Old Testament. All right. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That's the promise. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Behold, I will send to you Elijah on that great and awesome day that the Lord comes. And so the Old Testament gives this promise, this prophecy that Elijah will come and that he will be the opening act for the Lord. And so Elijah busts onto the scene and he is saying, prepare your hearts for the Lord. And they come and they really rightfully ask, are you Elijah? And John says, no. (laughs) Now this gets kind of complicated because John says, no, I'm not Elijah. But Jesus in other places says, John was Elijah. John was Elijah. And so was John confused? Was he misled or I don't think it's any of those. Let me just briefly explain. In 2 Kings 2.11, Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament, a great man of God, and he was taken up into a whirlwind into heaven. So, so Elijah, who walked on the earth physically, never died. He was just taken up into heaven. Now, was John that literal, physical Elijah who walked on the earth and prophesied in the time of kings? Was, was John that literal in the flesh guy? No. But then you read on. Matthew eleven thirteen. Read along with me. Jesus says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Matthew 17, 10 through 13. And the disciples asked him, being Jesus, then why do, you, why do the scribes say the first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. 
So what's very interesting here is just in God's sovereign plan, just as he did with Jesus, he hides the identity of John from some people. Some people who will not believe that John is the Elijah. Some people who would not believe that Jesus is the Christ. He hides his identity from them. And so John was not the physical, literal Elijah that walked the earth in the Old Testament. But for those who believe, he is the Elijah that has come to prepare the way of the Lord. This still happens today. You may remember if you were here a couple of weeks ago, when I spoke on the Lord's Supper, it, we, we talked about the Passover meal and how the Jews still celebrate this with a Seder meal. And one of the things they do at the end of the time is they fill up the cup of Elijah. And then they go and they sing a song, a Hallel, looking forward to the redemption of Israel. And then they all go to the front door. They open the front door and they look for Elijah. They see if Elijah's coming because if Elijah comes, that means that the Lord is coming. That means the Savior is coming. And Jesus says, for those of you who believe, Elijah has already come. The Christ is here. And it is me, Jesus says. So we see John is not the Elijah, but for those who believe. Thirdly, we see John is not the prophet. So the next thing uh, the Jews asked John, he says, are you the prophet? And he answers, no. Now they don't say, are you a prophet? But they say, are you the prophet? This is referring back to Deuteronomy 18. I'll read it for you. Uh, Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him who shall listen. Then the Lord says in verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command them. So the Jews have been waiting for this prophet for 400 years, the prophet who will speak the very word of God, Last week we saw he is the very word of God. In John 6 and John 7, it goes on to describe that Jesus is indeed the prophet that is talked about. And so John is not the prophet, but the prophet comes in Christ. So John knows who he's not. John knows that he is not the Christ. He's not the literal, physical, tangible Elijah. And he knows that he is not, he is not the prophet that was to come. But John also knows who he is. After being exhausted with questions, the, uh, the, the priests that come to interrogate him finally say this in verse 22. They say, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And then to the answer to the question, John says in verse 23, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John is the wilderness voice. What does that mean? Again, the priest would have fully understood this, but what does it mean that John is the wilderness voice? Well, to give you the context in Isaiah, uh, uh, Isaiah is speaking to the exiled Israel, and he is telling them that they have been exiled because of their sin, but that God will come that the glory of God will come in power, and that there is hope and good news for them in exile. Because God is coming to rescue them, to bring them back to himself, to bring them back to the promised land. And then he says this in Isaiah 40, verse 3 through 5. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, 
and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He's using imagery that would be familiar to the Israelites, that all the, all the mountains should be brought low, all the valleys and rough places should be smoothed out to make an easy transition for the Lord to come. He's speaking of their hearts, that they need to change their hearts to accept the Lord. Let me give you a current illustration because we probably don't get this quite as much. Imagine your family's coming for the weekend. What do you do besides panic, right? You you prepare. You prepare your house. You clean the bathrooms. Make sure there's fresh toilet paper there. You make sure there's fresh sheets. You vacuum the carpet. You make sure the the, the kitchen is clean. What would you do if if the mayor came (laughs) or the governor or even the president? How would you prepare then? How would you prepare your house if God was coming? If Jesus was coming to your house? You would clean it out, wouldn't you? John tells us how to clean out the house, how to prepare the way for the Lord. It's actually uh, articulated more concisely in Matthew. Matthew 3, 1 through 3, it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent! Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. How do we prepare for the Savior? How do we prepare for the King? It's not by cleaning your house. It's not by merely just cleaning up your lifestyle. It's repenting. Repenting. Saying, God, I am so sorry for what I have done. I have lived in ways that are rebellious to you. Forgive me. I need a Savior. If you feel distant from God right now, if you feel far from God, how do you, how do you open the highway for the love and grace and mercy of God to come into your life? You lower the drawbridge of repentance. You say, I need you. Come into my heart. John says, prepare, repent. So we see that John is the voice in the wilderness. We also see that John is inferior. John 1.15. It says, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Now this is kind of a confusing statement. John is trying to do a play on words here. But what he's saying is, yes, my ministry came first. Yes, I have this huge following. But Jesus actually came before me. He was here since the beginning of time. He was here before the beginning of time. And his ministry will be greater. And he is a greater person than me. He continues in verse 25. Said, Then they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And then I love John's answer here. He doesn't even answer their question. But he says this in verse 26. I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. What John is saying here is is absolutely startling. You see, John had disciples, right? Jesus had disciples. And and what disciples would often do is make arrangements. They were kind of like, if you had an office administrator, they would make the arrangements, right? So the Passover meal, do you remember Jesus sent the disciples in the town, said, prepare for the Passover meal? That was legitimate. That was things that disciples would do. That's things that an administrator would do. 
But you know what an administrator wouldn't do? You know what a disciple wouldn't do? Well, let me put it this way. They walked in sandals or barefoot, right? And things were not that clean. Animals were walking around. It was dirty. It was muddy. It was nasty, right? Disciples did not touch the feet of their teacher. They didn't didn't take off from that calloused, nasty, sweaty, stinky foot. They would come nowhere close to it. That was only reserved for a slave. Only a slave could sink that low to do that task. And yet John says here, I am not even worthy to be his slave. I don't know about you, but I get this order mixed up all the time. I think that Jesus is simply there to serve me. And it's all about me. But the reality is, is that it is all about Christ. I don't know who we think we are sometimes, but this is a great reminder that we are not even worthy. We're not even worthy to be the slave of Jesus Christ. We're not worthy. And yet, Jesus, this great and exalted king, calls us friend. He calls us brother. He is the lover of our souls. What a glorious king he is. So you see, John knows that he is inferior to Jesus. Finally, John is an ambassador. Verse 6 says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Just as the priest sent, uh, just as the priests were sent by the Jews to interrogate John, same words used, John was sent by God to be a witness. It, it says it throughout here, verse 7. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. Verse 8, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Verse 15, John bore witness about him. Verse 32, John bore witness. Do you see a pattern? <laughs> John came to be a witness, to be an ambassador for Christ. Verse 31 says that he came and baptized that Christ might be revealed to Israel. John is sent by God to reveal Jesus. Now, how does he do that? How is he an ambassador? Three things I just want to point to really quick because we're running short on time. He points out, he's a witness that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Again, we covered this a few weeks ago in the Passover and talking about the Passover, but the Lamb of God would be wiped over the doorposts of the house so that the just judgment of God would pass over. The Lamb would be sacrificed as a sin atonement for the people of Israel. And here he is saying, Behold, this is the Lamb of God. He is the prophesied Lamb that would be led to the slaughter. He'd become the Lamb of God that would die for our sin on the cross so that we could live with God. The second thing he testified to is that Jesus is the Holy Spirit baptizer. Verse 32, And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He who you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. You know, at, at Jacob's Well in the church, we baptize with water. That's what we're called to do. But it is, it, it is a sign and a seal pointing to what Jesus does, which is so much greater that Jesus Christ baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so all who come to faith in Christ have the Holy Spirit. All who have the Holy Spirit are Christians. 
The Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. The Holy Spirit tabernacles inside our hearts. And John is a witness to this. Finally, he says, Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 34, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. I don't know about you. I like many of you. I love many of you. But I would not give up my son for you. And yet God took his son, his only son, sent him to die for you and for me. It cost him great pain, great suffering. But he did it to win you because he loves you. And these are the things that John is proclaiming. All right. Let me kind of wrap up with this. It's a longer conclusion, but important. As I mentioned earlier, I look at John and I admire John. John is a man who is bold. Uh, He is secure in his identity. He is confident in his message. He knows who he is. And I would love to live life like him. I'd love to have as much conviction and passion and love and boldness as John. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you love to have that much conviction? So, So what empowered John? What would empower us? Well, John, as we said, knew who he wasn't. John knew he wasn't the Christ. He knew he wasn't the literal Elijah. He knew that he wasn't the prophet. John also knew who he was. John knew that he was the wilderness voice, the one who was saying, repent, prepare for the Lord to come. John was inferior to Jesus, unworthy even to be his slave. John was the ambassador sent by God to be a witness and to reveal Jesus. John lived with great purpose and conviction and passion and boldness because John knew who he wasn't and he knew who he was. But there's something that underlines this whole passage, something that is more implicit than explicit, that really can turn this for us, that can, that can change what would give us such boldness and passion and conviction that John had, something that's really throughout this. And here's what it is. If you notice, as we listed John's identity, every single part of his identity was found in Christ. Every part of his identity was found in in Jesus. Not in himself, but in Christ. He was a wilderness voice preparing the way for who? Jesus. He was an inferior servant of who? Jesus. He was an ambassador that revealed and witnessed about who? Jesus. You see, your identity will be found in something or someone. It's always related. It's always connected to something. Your value, your identity will be made through this association. Let me give you an example. If I came to you and I said, who are you? You might connect yourself with a job, and you might say, I am an architect. I might come to you and say, who are you? And you might connect yourself with family, and you say, I am a stay-at-home mom, or I am a working mom. You might identify yourself with your gifts. You might say, I am a musician. And all of those are good things, and they are certainly a part of your identity. But you will never have the passion. You will never have the boldness. You will never have the conviction of John if that's all that you are. See, your identity is only as valuable and powerful as the thing that you are connected to. Your, value is only, your, your identity is only as valuable and powerful as the thing you are connected to. There is a value by association. Let me give you this illustration. There was an American tourist who went to Paris, and this tourist purchased this inexpensive amber necklace in, a, in just like a trinket shop. 
Well, when he brought the necklace back and he was going through customs, they, they charged him an extraordinary amount. He was curious about this, and so he took the necklace to a jeweler. The jeweler put it underneath a microscope, and he looked up at the man and he said, I will give you $25,000 for this necklace right now. <laughs> the man was intrigued, so he went to another jeweler. Jeweler put it underneath the microscope, looked at it. Man looked up and said, I will give you $35,000 for this necklace right now. The man was just beside himself. He, had, he, he bought this thing, cheap, cheap thing, in a, in a trinket shop. And he's, why are you guys offering me so much money? And the man said, come over here. Look in the microscope. So, so the jeweler backs away. The man pulls up, and he looks down into the microscope. And as he looks into the microscope, he's astonished because he sees this inscription on it. From Napoleon Bonaparte to Josephine. That's what's inscribed on this necklace. You see, the value of the necklace was tied to who it was identified with. It's identification to a famous person. If you are a Christian, if you trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you are not only associated with Jesus, you are not only identified with Jesus, you are not only in relationship to Jesus, but you are united to Jesus. You are united to the Son of God, united to the Savior, and you can never, 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 never lose that union with him. You are a precious gem of tremendous value to the one who matters most, the one of whom you are not even worthy to be his slave. You are precious gem, one of tremendous value to the God of the universe. Why? Because your primary identity, your primary personhood is not found in yourself, but it is found in Jesus Christ. When we grasp this great reality, when we experience it, when we understand it, it can transform meek, lowly people into someone who is as bold as John. It can drive our purpose, our passion, our zeal, our life, our identity, because it is found in Christ. And this will create in us a holy joy and a holy boldness, one in which the world will come to you and it will say, who are you? Who do you think you are? And you will look at them and you will say, I am not the Christ. I am not the Elijah. I am not the prophet. I am a voice beckoning you to repent and prepare your heart for the Lord. I am inferior to Jesus. I am not even worthy to be his slave. I'm ambassador for God to reveal Jesus. You will say, I am not the Christ, but the Christ loved me and gave himself for me as the Lamb of God. You will say, I am not the Christ, but the Christ lives in me. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes the truth you reveal in your word are too overwhelming, God. In Christ, we have a great joy. You have united us to him, Lord. We praise you for that, God. As we come to the Lord's table, we thank you for it. We thank you that it is a reminder 
of our union with Jesus, just as we take in these physical, tangible elements and they become part of our body and they seep into every ounce of who we are, God, we know that Christ is even more present than that in us. Lord, we are completely unworthy. We're not even worthy to be your slave. And yet you have united us to Jesus. We praise you because it is a grace that is so hard to understand, a grace that is so unfathomable, but a grace that is true in Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.